I'm Kim Singletary. And I'm Rich Collins. And you're listening to Biz Talks, a weekly conversation with local business leaders about topics affecting New Orleans and Southeast Louisiana. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the podcast. I'm Rich Collins. Today's guest is Chip Klein, Vice President of Government Programs and Policy at GIS Engineering. Until very recently, he was chairman of the Louisiana Coastal Protection and Restoration Authority. Klein will be one of the featured speakers at the annual Economic and Real Estate Forecast Symposium hosted by the New Orleans Metropolitan Association of Realtors on October 5th. At the event, experts in real estate, insurance, and finance will tackle the theme, Adapting to Unpredictability. Klein will discuss the connection between insurance and the environment. Chip Klein, welcome to the podcast. Well, thank you. Any Anytime I can get out of Baton Rouge, I'm, I'm game. So anytime I appreciate you having me. Appreciate you fighting the traffic. Yep. So you've been deeply involved in the state's coastal protection efforts for years. Can you give us the Reader's Digest version of what you've been doing for the last few years and then why you've decided to switch roles recently? Sure. So I, um, first of all, you know, coastal protection and coastal restoration, you know, the, the two are one and the same, right? And so over, since the 1930s, the state of Louisiana has lost approximately 2,000 square miles of land, which mm. is roughly the size of the state of Delaware. Mm. And because of the fact that our land continues to disappear at an alarming rate, that makes us more susceptible, more vulnerable to strengthening storms and hurricanes. And so when we're talking about coastal restoration, we're really talking about restoring our land, right? And so they're what we call multiple lines of defense. My first line of defense are our barrier islands, um, which is the, that first speed bump that a storm will hit uh, when it's coming on shore. And so we spent hundreds of millions of dollars uh, restoring close to 70 miles of barrier islands over the last several years. And so that's your first line of defense. Your second line of defense are your, your marshes, your your, your wetlands, uh, and for every two miles of wetlands that exist on the ground today, storm surge can be knocked down by one foot. Hmm. And so that natural buffer, your barrier islands, your, your marshes, your wetlands, are just as equally important to protecting us from storms and hurricanes as our inland hurricane protection systems are. And so your barrier islands, your marshes, your ridge, ridges, your, your terracing, you know, things of that nature, or the coastal restoration side. Hurricane protection... Is, or your levees, your pump stations, your surge barriers, your floodgates, similar to what you see around the city of New Orleans, which right. the Corps of Engineers built uh, after Hurricane Katrina, which, by the way, is the largest civil works project in the history of the United States Army Corps of Engineers. Wow. wow. $14 billion system. Um, and if you think back to what uh, this city experienced after Hurricane Katrina— all of us remember the, the media footage that went around the world of water up to people's roof line. But then fast forward to what we saw after Hurricane Ida here in the greater New Orleans area, a much different picture on the ground following Hurricane Ida. Right. And I'm not trying to minimize what people experienced as a result of that storm, but a much different picture on the ground following that storm. And that is a direct result of the investments that has been made by the state of Louisiana through the Coastal Protection Restoration Authority in our coast, in restoring our, our, our various causes of land loan, restoring our coast, restoring our land, but then also the investments that we've made in our flood protection and our hurricane protection systems over the last several years. I want to ask you just a remedial question for my benefit. I think I understand many of the reasons why we're losing all the land, 
but can you explain just in layman's terms for people who aren't in it every day, what are the causes? Sure. So it's important for listeners to know that it is not one single factor that is driving our coast uh, to disappear. However, our land loss crisis started in the state of Louisiana after the flood of 1927, when the federal government through the Corps of Engineers came in and levied the Mississippi River. And so before those levees were put up, our state was actively growing on an annual basis. Because of that fresh water, because of that sediment supply that the Mississippi River carries, we were accreting land on an annual basis. But what happened when we put those levees along the Mississippi River to channel the river into its current course is it severed that sediment supply and that fresh water supply that built our state, built the land we stand on today. And that's when you started to see our state disappear. So that's one factor. The other factor is saltwater intrusion. When saltwater gets into your marshes and your wetlands and it becomes too salty, that vegetation dies, causing that submerged vegetation to die and essentially you go from marsh to open water. Uh, So saltwater intrusion, a lack of sediment supply, and then all of us know the importance of the oil and gas industry in the state uh, from an economic standpoint, from a job creator. But you cannot argue with the fact that when those canals were dredged by the oil and gas companies uh, to lay those pipelines that it allowed for saltwater to enter into at a more, um, let's just say a faster rate. Uh, And then we are no strangers to storms here in Louisiana. And so, for example, in Hurricane Ida alone, we lost 109 square miles. Think about that, 109 square miles in in just from from one storm. How does that work? Well, again, when it's at saltwater, right? And so when you have that massive amount of saltwater coming in at, you know, that fast of rate. It's the surge, basically. it's, It's the surge. But then also what happens is, is that water can't get out when you have that much water. So that salt water just stays in your marsh, causing uh, your, your, your land to disappear. And anytime you have that amount of water lapping up on a levee for a continued period of time, the wind speed associated with the water, obviously you're going to have some devastation across your, your coast. And then there's other environmental factors. The BP oil spill comes to mind, which really further exacerbated a lot of the land loss uh, factors and land loss statistics across our coast. And so those are lack of sediment, saltwater intrusion, oil and gas exploration. And, you know, really, I I don't understand why this is such a political issue, but sea level rise. And so whether or not you believe that climate change is the natural cycle of the earth, or it is due to human factors or human um, contributions, you cannot deny the fact that the Gulf of Mexico is rising. There, There are areas in South Louisiana now that used to drain into the Gulf and now those areas are draining and hitting the head of the Gulf of Mexico, and the water is going east and west. And so the, the Gulf of Mexico is higher today than it ever has been. And so if you look out into the future, the main driver for land loss in the state is sea level rise, not, not subsidence, which is also another contributing factor where your land is just sinking um, beneath us. And so those are all oh, kind of the, this, this massive... Um, it's more than a trifecta, really, because it's it's more than three. But it's um, all of those factors are causing our our land to disappear. Uh, so many, it's so many things. Yep, yep. <laughs> it's it look and, and sometimes you you look at this issue and and 
the scope and scale of it. This isn't just Southeast Louisiana problem. This is from Cameron, Calcasieu, Vermilion, through St. Mary, Iberia, all the way to Plaquemines and St. Menard. So this is a coast-wide issue. But South Louisiana is home to over 2 million people. That's over half of our state's population. If you look at the economic assets that are housed across South Louisiana, five of the top 15 largest ports in the country based upon tonnage, 20% of the nation's oil and gas comes from the Gulf of Mexico. 70% of that oil and gas is transported through Louisiana offshore oil port. Look at Port Fouchon. Services 90% of the deep oil and gas produced in the Gulf of Mexico. Our fisheries, our recreational and commercial fisheries are ranked one to two nationally. Uh, Our seafood industry, one to two nationally. Look at the Mississippi River, the amount of commerce that moves up and down the river on a daily basis. Strategic petroleum reserves, which you've heard President Biden have to tap into to lower the cost of, of, of gasoline. All of those things are housed in South Louisiana. So this is an issue not only that matters, but it also is an issue that affects every single aspect of Louisiana's economy. And there are still too many people in the state of Louisiana that I believe just look at this issue as, well, that's a conservation issue. That's really about habitat for wildlife and fisheries. But just think about that. Think about the the statistics that I just mentioned. You, You can have the best hospitals in the world. If there's six feet of water in that hospital, that hospital can't provide the medical services that are needed to people in need. You know, we, we talked about the, the No More Conference coming up. The fact that you have houses that are more susceptible and more vulnerable to storm surge affects the real estate market. Um, j- just look at what happened after Hurricane Ida to our electrical grid infrastructure that literally fell into the Mississippi River. And what happened? The Coast Guard shut down the Mississippi River. So that affects not only South Louisiana, but it affects the, the nation's GDP. Uh, and so what, what I used to always say when I was working at CPRA is that without flood protection, nothing else matters. And that's why this issue really must remain at the forefront of local, state, and federal government for years to come. It's the very definition of an existential threat. Mm-hmm. It, is an accident. it is our very existence, our way of life, our culture, it's, it's safe to say we have a unique culture here, a very special way of life, and all of, all of those things are at risk as a result of our state, uh, our coast being more vulnerable, the, the fact that we continue to lose land, um, and that um, there are still areas across South Louisiana that do not enjoy what the greater New Orleans area has, which is a, one of the finest hurricane risk reduction systems anywhere in the world. There's a paradox that I can't help noticing as you were talking about all that, which is that the coast is essential to our way of life, but it's the way of life that's threatened the coast. Sure. sure. If we weren't here, Mm -hmm. a lot of these problems wouldn't exist. That's right. I mean, look, I mean, so, for example, on the the Mississippi River, I mean, those levees provide, allow for people to live and work where they do today. But there are ramifications of putting those levees up. And so that's why at CPRA, they focus on a lot what they call adaptive management. The, the coast is always changing. The coast of today is not going to be the coast of tomorrow. The coast of tomorrow is not going to be the coast of the future. Right. And so you're, you're, you're going to have a consistently changing environment that we must uh, learn to, to live with, to adapt with. Um, and so, but you know, I, I think 
when it comes to this issue, we, we focus on the doom and gloom more so than what has been accomplished. And, and look, the, the, these are scary environmental scenarios. If you look out into the future, the rate of sea level rise, the rate of you know, saltwater intrusion or subsidence, those are things that we need to deal with. But since 2007, when the first Coastal Master Plan was, was done, over 70 miles of barrier islands have been completed, over 50,000 acres of new land have been uh, built, over 370 miles of levees have been constructed, and so that th- those are, th- we are keeping up with this today because of the funding and the political will and the scientific information that we have. Um, but that, that funding that the coastal program in the state has enjoyed over the last several years is going to dry up in 2032 when the BP oil spill dollars go up. And so y- you, have, you have a plan that is science-based, um, that looks at all of these different environmental scenarios, that identifies the projects that can withstand those environmental scenarios. And I believe that the state of Louisiana is putting its money where its mouth is when it comes to this issue. Because in this year alone, the state will be investing $1.6 billion to restore and protect our coast, which is the largest investment in the history of the state's coastal program. This week, there's a major milestone coming up at the, the groundbreaking for the mid barataria Sediment Diversion Project? Yes, sir. Uh, what's the significance? So this is a, um, that, that groundbreaking is on Thursday, and um, I, I believe that this is a moment that is decades in the making. Th- this is a project that is designed to mimic the natural process that built the state of Louisiana to begin with. Because as I just mentioned earlier, when those levees went up, that's when our land loss crisis started. And so by putting a controlled structure uh, along the west bank of the Mississippi River, just south of Bell Chase, you will allow for a controlled reintroduction of the Mississippi River into the Barataria Basin. And so I, I mentioned controlled because I want to stress controlled, that this is not just blowing a hole in the levee and letting the river run right. run wild, so to speak, that this is a... A structure, it's about 75,000 CFS of water, which will only be operated at that's a maximum capacity. You're probably going to be operating that diversion anywhere between 25 to 50,000 CFS at a time, which is still a good amount of fresh water and sediment. But I truly believe that that project is the lifeline for southeast Louisiana. Because not only are you building tens of thousands of acres of new land, but by reintroducing that, that sediment supply, you're nourishing existing land that is in place today, and you are furthering the lifespan of some of the other projects that we're building, our marsh creation projects, where you're dredging and pumping that sediment. Right. And so a lot of people say, well, why don't you just dredge? That's immediate land building, right? And that's all we've done up to this point in the coastal program is dredge and pump sediment. But if you, if you only dredge and pump sediment, and do nothing else. Mm-hmm. The lifespan of that project is anywhere from 15 to 20 years because there's nothing to nourish it. There's nothing it. to sustain it. And so that's the beautiful thing about a sediment diversion is you're building all of this new land with that sediment supply and that reintroduction of fresh water. 
but you're you're nourishing and you're helping sustain some of the other projects. Is there an example of a sediment diversion that's been successful somewhere? Uh, so th- there are two different types of diversions. Uh, Mid-Bear Terry is a sediment diversion. There are other freshwater diversions, and there is a difference. They may sound similar, but a freshwater diversion, there's one on Davis Pond, there's one on Carnarvon, or two um, structures that were built by the Corps of Engineers to manage the salinity regime within a particular basin for oyster harvesting, shrimp production, things of that nature, because when those things were constructed, the basin was too salty. And so the fishing industry was like, we need fresh water. Right. And so these structures were built. They were not designed to build land. They were just designed to reintroduce fresh water. But what we see in the Davis Pond Basin and the Carnarvon Basin is land being built by these diversions that are simply designed to manage fresh water. And so the difference between a freshwater diversion and a sediment, a sediment diversion is built much lower in the water column to the where you're getting more of that finer silt, that sand, that clay that kind of flows through the river that's push through uh, the diversion channel into the Barataria Basin. So this is the only sediment diversion that is in the works. Well, there's another one on Mid-Breton on the East Banks, much um, further behind Mid-Barataria. But the only other diversions that we can point to are Davis Pond and Carnarvon from a structural standpoint. But even globally, this is not something that's... Uh, We are told that this is... uh, First of all, it's the largest coastal restoration project in the country and the largest of its type anywhere in the world. Wow! And so we're, we're not aware of, of any other sediment diversion type projects um, anywhere else in the world. But if you look at like where the Atchafalaya River enters into the Gulf of Mexico and the Wax Lake outlet, that is the only area that is actively growing land in the state of Louisiana. Huh. There and any other place that is connected to a river. So if you think about this, the river built our state. Our land losses crisis started when the river was severed. And the only areas that are actively building land in the state of Louisiana today are the areas that are connected to a river. And so that's why I am just um, a tad bit excited about the groundbreaking (laughs) on the on Thursday, because that this has been decades in the making. It's been a um, a lengthy permitting process, to say the least. But um, this was one of the key projects that was identified even prior to 2007 when the first master plan was done, back in coast 2050 when Governor Mike Foster was the governor, that we have to reintroduce the river if we stand a fighting chance to save our coast. And just can you sh- uh, say a few words about the, the commercial fishermen objections and just address Sure. That. So, I mean, look, there are negative impacts associated with this project. And those those impacts are something that the folks at CPRA have not shied away from. But we've learned to adapt to a changing coast before, and we're going to have to continue to learn to adapt. But if you don't build the project, you're going to continue to see your ecosystem collapse. You're going to continue to see your, your estuary deteriorate. And so what the folks at CPRA have been doing over the last several years is working with the oyster industry, with the commercial commercial fishing industry, the shrimp industry, the, the seafood industry as a whole, to kind of show them when the diversion is on, this is what your salinity regime looks like. And these are the areas that we believe that you can transition to to continue your livelihoods. Um, and so it, it's just a matter of working together, having a true sense of partnership, but it's human nature to resist change. 
and that's what we see from you know a lot of the commercial fisheries is that they just they want things to remain the same and we know that that is not possible if we're going to continue along the trajectory of building these restoration and protection projects um, that, that we know will save the place we call home. So on to another existential threat. Um, for a lot of people who live here in New Orleans and South Louisiana in general, there was a, a decade after, let's say, Katrina, where you felt like just this, things were getting better, things were getting mm-hmm. better. We didn't get hammered by a bunch of storms. And then the last three, four years, we just got hit by that series. And um, the insurance industry paid, what is it, $11 billion in claims in Louisiana over the course of those three events. A lot of money. And uh, we lost a lot of insurers. As a result, uh, you know, homeowners insurance policies have gone through the roof. Uh, the flood insurance, uh, you know, risk rating 2.0 recalculation that we've already talked about, that's, co- that's caused a lot of pain. Uh, you know, there's, there's a lot of reasons for people to think that it's getting too difficult to, to own a house in New Orleans, in South Louisiana, pay for a house, all that kind of stuff. So I wanted to talk about this hot topic, no pun intended, mm-hmm. in South Louisiana. Uh, you know, many in New Orleans and surrounding parishes are concerned about the rising rates for flood and homeowners insurance. Can you talk about this problem, how it's how we've gotten here, and potential solutions from your perspective as an expert on you know the coast? Well, I think you hit the nail you know on the head. Is because you know we're doing all this work to restore and protect our coast, um, but can people afford to still live here when you see flood insurance premiums increasing by over eighty percent? And, and the, the maddening thing about all of this is that, you know, insurance companies leaving the state is one thing, and that's a little bit out of my wheelhouse. You may want to talk to Commissioner Donilon about that. However, the work that the state's coastal program is doing is lowering people's risk all across South Louisiana. And so, for example, in Terrebonne and Lafourche parishes, the, that levee system that was constructed over the last several years withstood a 16-foot storm surge, a significant reduction in risk, yet you see flood insurance premiums increase by 80%. And so the opposite should be happening. If you're lowering people's risk from hurricanes and flooding, then you should see a reduction in flood insurance premiums. And that is where... Uh, I think the the frustrating thing comes in. And the reason why that is, the reason why insurance premiums continue to rise is that FEMA, they have to go out and map the coast. They have to map South Louisiana to determine where a particular home is or where a particular business is and what that entity's risk is from storms or hurricanes, uh, from storm surge. And all of the work that's been done over the last several years is not being incorporated into that mapping because the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers is not communicating with its sister agency, FEMA, to certify that these levees meet the criteria, that they meet the standard, and that they're certifying that they provide a 100-year level of risk reduction. And so it, it, it's maddening, quite frankly, uh, that you continue to see this take place when, if you remember what I said earlier, much different picture on the ground. In Hurricane Ida, you didn't have a single levee that was breached. You didn't have a single levee that was overtopped. Yes, there was impacts or flooding in areas that were outside of these hurricane protection systems. Um, 
but but the federal government is taking a flawed approach to this issue because they're not providing an accurate depiction of what's on the ground. And I believe that our congressional delegation is on top of this issue. So Senator Cassidy, along with Senator Hyde-Smith from Mississippi, has filed a bill that freezes people's flood insurance premiums where they are today um, and allows for them to, to kind of work through some rules and policies with FEMA on an updated risk 2.0. But um, 80% increases in premiums, um, 900,000 coastal policies are in play here. Uh, and that's about 100,000 in Louisiana. And so 80% of that 900,000 are actually policyholders in Louisiana, Alabama, and Mississippi. So this is going to be an issue for coastal communities across the country, but the Gulf Coast states are going to take a shellacking here if FEMA doesn't get their act together and recognize the, the projects and the progress that has been made over the last several years. And so this is... Um, this issue of, of insurance premiums, you know, really isn't within the, the wheelhouse of the Coastal Protection and Restoration Authority, but residents across the state are, are screaming for somebody at the state level to take ownership of this issue because you can build the best levees to restore your land at the fastest rate as you possibly can, but if, if you can't afford to pay your mortgage or your insurance, then people are leaving. Right. And um, that, that, that's a scary thing uh, to think about. So you obviously think a lot about the, the flood insurance issue, the risk rating 2.0. And because of your work in the coastal protection and, and creating the barrier islands and everything else, I think you're thinking a lot about flooding. But then this past cycle of storms, you know, we didn't suffer. We didn't get the water event like we did, mm-hmm. uh, you know, in 05. Uh, but instead, we had a lot of shingles come up. A lot of roofs get partially damaged and a lot of water intrusion. Um, I think that ended up accounting for uh, 80, 90% of all sure. the claims was mm-hmm. just some some form of roof failure. Uh, not necessarily catastrophic, but enough to get the contents uh, mm-hmm. and then you know cause a big claim. Do you have thoughts just from your vantage point about what a lot of folks are saying, which is with the reality of stronger and more frequent storms, we need to build stronger and more resilient sure. structures. There, there's no doubt about it. I mean, just look at our electrical grid, for example. I mean, do we still do we want to put electrical lines on wooden poles on Grand Isle? <laughs> no, like bury the thing. Put I mean, put right. it underground so where you're not having this. But look, I mean, look, is, is there what I'll call shoddy construction across the state? Sure, you know, we need to be building to a standard that proves to be resilient. And that's why if you look at what Senator, Senator Sharon Hewitt did, who's now candidate for governor, she, she passed a bill that said, if you experience or you had a flood claim or a, an insurance claim as a result of a damaged roof or a damage to your, your, um, your home or your business, and you rebuild with a more resilient roof or whatever whatever is called for to, to make your, your home or your business more resilient, um, then you cannot, you cannot have uh, an increase in your insurance policy uh, because in her mind, you are addressing the problem. Right. And so I, I think that there needs to be, I, I do believe, and this can be a, 
a controversial or unpopular um, position. But I, I do think we need to look at our building standards in, in the state on how we're building, where we're building. Um, I mean, even you're starting to see in the Baton Rouge area, at some of these areas like Zachary, um, Gonzales, Prairieville that are expanding at rapid rates. And so they're going out into what used to be retention areas for water and they're putting concrete up. And, and, and that just allows for flooding. And right. so I think we just need to be very thoughtful on how we're building, thoughtful on where we're building, and um, because th- this is an issue that's not going away. Right. Um, so hopefully we don't have any horrible storms this year, and we don't need FEMA to come in and, and uh, intervene in the aftermath. But do you feel like there are any changes to uh, policy or procedures uh, Related to that disaster recovery funds and that sort of thing, how, did, how how's FEMA doing in your? Well, for, first of all, let, let me say that you know a lot of people look at the overall cost of protecting homes and businesses or coastal communities, but proactive investments in hurricane protection projects and flood protection projects ultimately are going to save the federal government money in the long run. Look at the West Shore Project. The West Shore Project protects St. Charles, St. John, and St. James parishes. And it was shellacked during Hurricane Isaac. It was shellacked again in Hurricane Ida. The West Shore Lake Pontchartrain Project was authorized in 1972. Mm. As a result of Hurricane Isaac, Congress appropriated money. So Hurricane Isaac, I believe, was in 2011. 12, maybe. I can't remember exactly when Isaac was. But in 2021, when Ida hit, it still wasn't built. And so what happened? You had flooding. You had small business loans. You had FEMA appropriate billions of dollars to respond to those things. So, yes, it's expensive to build these types of projects, but you're saving the money, the federal government money in the long run. My, my problem with FEMA is this, is that they don't operate in a proactive mindset. They're always reacting to what the disaster is or what the current state of play is on the ground. And so I I know, for example, at the state governor's office of Homeland Security and Emergency Preparedness, which is really the emergency response agency of the state, is that they are now looking at where we house flood fighting assets today, um, heading into hurricane season and throughout the year to where you can quickly deploy them. They're looking at contracting with people who can deploy these things sooner rather than later so you don't have to wait on FEMA. But, you know, just look what happened in Lafitte after Hurricane Ida. FEMA had to come in and provide temporary housing, and they were delayed getting in here, and then they pulled the housing out you know, soon they gave the residents there, uh, I think, an unrealistic um, timeline on when they needed to be out of these, these houses. And so I, I think more proactive in engagement from FEMA to where they're not reacting, that they're thinking proactively on where they're sta- staging assets, what, what are the needs, what are the most vulnerable communities, and to where that they're being a little bit more what I, what I call considerate of some of these areas in South Louisiana. Um, 
a, a lot of these areas are underserved. They're underprivileged, un, underprivileged communities, and I, th- I think that they could use a little bit more consideration in the timeline by which they're being held to some of these these contracts, these temporary homes, um, especially when your your water system, your electricity, they're not back up and running yet. Right. And so I, I just think that uh, there's more. The federal government as a whole must operate at a more proactive mindset and not so much reactionary. As I listen to you talk, I'm struck by the thought that there are two things that have to happen to protect this community. One is the actual infrastructure changes, maybe correcting some mistakes from the past, you know, filling in Mr. Go and all that kind of stuff from, mm-hmm. um, you know, trying to the sediment diversion project, all of these efforts. Uh, but then the, the other part of it is is policy. And it's the way it's it all happens up in Baton Rouge and in Washington, D.C. And it's it's the perception uh you know, and, and creating the political will to, pr- to protect us. Well, it's a perception sometimes that government just doesn't work. You know, I mean, look at Midbear Terrier, for example. I mean, we, we had a, a six-year permitting timeline, a six-year timeline to permit this restoration project that protects our coast, that sustains our coast, that restores our coast, and yet we're being hampered by environmental laws and regulations that are designed to do just that. And so in my mind, when you're talking about projects that benefit the environment, sustain the environment, protect the environment, they should be looked at through a different lens. Right. Uh, and so it, it's the, the amount of time that it takes the federal government to act. I mean, I just mentioned West Shore Lake Pontchartrain around the river parishes, authorized in 1972, and it's still not built. Right. Look at the Comet River Diversion Project that was built in East Bay, or not yet built, was authorized in 1984. Hmm. And it took the flooding in 2016 to get Congress to appropriate the money to do this, these things. And so people, I, I just think people lose their sense of hope um, in the federal government. And, but the, one of the greatest things about this state and the people that live in this state is that they're not waiting on the federal government to come take care of them. Right. You know, you have folks in Terrebonne and Lafourche parishes who have a constitutional millage for hurricane protection and they pass additional sales taxes on, on to themselves to go ahead and build their levees and their floodgates and their pump stations. And so it's that type of mindset, that type of proactive thinking that I think really sets Louisiana apart because we know that we're going to have another hurricane. Right. It's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when. Right. And um, I'm just really proud of the people of this state because I think time and time again, we've proven to be the most resilient people in this country. And um, there's just an incredible uh, amount of people who are passionate about this issue. But if I could get them on a political soapbox here, Look at the candidates running for governor. Go on their website. Look at their platforms by which they're running on. There's not a single candidate that is talking about restoring and protecting our coasts. All of the things they're talking about are important. Our roads and bridges are important. You can't drive on a road or a bridge if it's underwater. Our healthcare facilities are important. You can't provide medical services if your hospital's underwater. You're higher education facilities, your your elementary schools, your high schools, important. Students can't go to school if their schools are flooded. 
And so it, it just really frustrates me that this issue is not elevated to a higher political status in people with people running for office. Why do you think that is? Well, I don't. I, when people think about hurricane protection and coastal restoration, they say, "Well, that's not political, right?" It, it is the issue that brings everybody together. You, you have environmental groups sitting next to oil and gas companies in the state working on this issue. But if people aren't talking about it, then people forget about it. And so I, I really just wish, you know, I think the overall political climate in this country today, we have extremes. And coastal restoration and hurricane protection, I guess, just doesn't sell to the political spectrum in the country or in the state. But it's the issue, again, that affects every single other issue that people are talking about. That's undoubtedly true. And I, th- and I think that's the majority of the reason why. But I wonder, do you think it's also that it's just such a um, huge problem that people don't know where to, how to engage it? Well, maybe. Uh, it, it is a huge problem that is going to take a, a massive solution, but the state has identified what the solution is, and it's the coastal master plan. So, so think about this. The master plan that was just passed by the legislature in the last legislative session So you hear all these environmental scenarios, sea level rise, saltwater intrusion, subsidence, strengthening storms. If that master plan is implemented, the state of Louisiana will have less flood risk in 50 years than we do today. Wow. And so that's what this is all about. And so it's just a matter of continuing to make it a priority. And I'm not, I know I work for the guy, um, but Governor Edwards came in here from Amy, Louisiana from Terrebonne, excuse me, not Terrebonne, Tangipahoe Parish. Probably not knowing a lot about coastal restoration and hurricane protection. But to his credit, he says that it is the most important issue facing the state. It is an existential crisis. And he has committed hundreds of millions of dollars from surplus that the state has run over the last several years into this issue. Um... But again, if the state's not running surplus and the BP dollars go away, the state of Louisiana, it's, it's going to have to come up with other types of funding mechanisms to continue to ensure that this work is going to continue into the future. I hear what you're saying. In a post-BP money environment, and if, if when times are good, maybe there's money for this, and if suddenly there's a, 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 you know, a fiscal crisis, this is going to be the first thing to go, mm-hmm. which is the last thing we need to have in. Sure. Well, let me, speaking of funding, um, you know, there is a disparity that exists in this this country that is quite uh, maddening. And so every year, um, as a result of federal legislation, a portion of oil and gas royalties are returned to the Gulf-producing states, Texas, Louisiana, Mississippi, and Alabama. So 37.5% of royalties that are generated in certain areas of the Gulf are returned to those four states. So 37 and a half split between four states. Mm-hmm. We are capped at the amount of money that we can receive, and we have restricted uses. There's a constitutional amendment that we passed that you must spend those dollars on protection and restoration projects, which I believe is a good thing. Mm-hmm. By comparison, inland producing states that are producing oil and gas on federal lands share... of all revenue that is generated on federal lands, they're not capped, and they have unrestricted uses. So last year, the state of Louisiana received a check for about $84 million. 
by comparison, the state of New Mexico received a check for about $1.5 billion. Mm. And you know what the governor of New Mexico did with that check? She issued a stimulus check to every person living in the state of New Mexico. Wow. So I'm not aware of the fact that the state of New Mexico is disappearing with a, a football field of land every 100 minutes. Right, right. And so that's just another example of a disparity that exists on a funding uh, allocation that is slanted more so to inland-producing states, and it's because of different federal statutes that govern Well, there's, funding. again, a policy where you can try and so correct right. it at a policy level. So to his credit, Senator Cassidy, uh, Congressman Scalise, uh, both have legislation to address that disparity, but that could generate uh, an additional $2 billion for this, this effort over the next several years. Wow. Yep. So it's what um, are the prospects? Well, it's passed the House. Okay. And we got it out of Senate committee, and we were hoping to get it into the debt ceiling negotiation. But this is a fiscal impact because when you're taking money out of the federal treasury and returning it to the states, obviously it's going to show up what they call a score uh, in the federal scoring or how you impact the, the federal budget. But my argument is, again, we're taking those dollars which are required to be spent on hurricane protection, coastal restoration projects, you're reducing people's risk, and you're ultimately saving the federal government money in the long run. And so to me, it's just a no-brainer. So I'm, I'm hopeful that um, over the next, maybe within this Congress, um, we keep getting closer and closer. Right. It was reported out of committee in the Senate. The full House passed it, so we're just waiting on a Senate vote, but who knows what will happen. Well, maybe New Mexico will just give up some of their share. Right. I'll let you make that call. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think we have any New Mexico listeners, so I feel like I can say that. Well, we'll, we'll, we'll get an angry letter to the editor. All right, two quick questions for you to wrap it up. Yep. First, is, do you, you want to just give us a quick rundown of what your new role is at GIS? Yeah, so first of all, after 15 years with the state, uh, I, I just felt that it was time for a new chapter. Uh, I've been at it since uh, 2008, came in with Congressman Graves when he was there. And I, I felt that the coastal program was, was at a point that it was, I felt comfortable walking away. We have a new master plan that will govern the state's activities for the next six years. Major projects are now underway. And it's never a perfect time to leave, but I thought it was the right time to leave for my family. And so GIS is uh, just started there at the beginning of July. I'm he heading up all of their, their government relations, um, interacting with the congressional delegation, policymakers in Washington, D.C., have a two-year prohibition on doing anything at the state level mm. with the legislature or the CPRA, but I am actively working with uh, parish presidents across the coast to to help them with their types of projects and their priorities. And so, anything from coastal restoration, hurricane protection, infrastructure, energy, renewable energy, all, all of those things kind of fall on on my plate. From my quick Google, GIS started as a tiny company down in Galliano. That's right, in and Galliano, and as a Grand Isle Shipyards, which is what GIS. That's GIS, yeah. yes. And uh, but it has grown uh, really into an engineering firm, an industrial um, firm, and so it's its portfolio of 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 business and, and contacts and the things that we do are are far and wide. But I'm mainly on the on the coastal engineering and. Um, infrastructure energy space. That makes sense. That company probably grew with the energy industry, but now with all the potential changes and all these new That's areas, right. That's right. it kind of overlaps with yep. your expertise. Mm -hmm. Understood. Okay. So last question is, um, as we've been talking about, there's a general feeling here that extreme weather and other just environmental conditions is making life here 
dangerously expensive and, you know, it, it is truly an existential threat. So with that in mind, what makes you worried about that? And then what makes you have some optimism? I'll, I'm going to take the latter part of that question first. What, what gives me, uh, what makes me optimistic? And so the last two hurricane seasons that we've had here, where we've actually had a, a storm. Last year, we didn't have a storm, which was a beautiful thing. But if you think back to 2020 and 2021, Laura, Delta, and Ida, strongest storms to ever hit our state. Um, every single coastal restoration project and hurricane protection project did exactly what we hoped it would. It saved lived, lives, it saved livelihoods, but they also proved to be sustainable. And I think that's such an important you know, message for people to hear is that a lot of people say it's great that y'all are spending all this money restoring the coast, but it's just going to be wiped out by the next storm. And so the projects that have been built withstood some of the strongest storms to ever hit our state. Now, if you recall, I said that we lost 109 square miles during Ida, but that was existing marsh, that's existing land. But the projects we were building are standing up to some of these environmental scenarios, strengthening storms, which I think should give people hope for for years to come. The thing that really keeps me up at night is the fact that this is an issue that's never going to go away. It's never going to end. You're always, always going to have a plan that looks at the long-term sustainability of our coast. So it's the 50-year, 50, $50 billion master plan. It's not like we get to year 50 and say, adios, we closing up CPRA's doors and we go home. No, at year 50, you're going to have a new 50-year plan. Mm -hmm. And so my concern is that, you know, after Hurricane Katrina, they, they, people in Washington called it Louisiana fatigue. You know, it, but this is a special place that's worth preserving. And so the slug of this, the churn of this, um, the cost of living, cost of, of insurance, the cost of flood insurance, the cost of continuing to live and work where we do is going to be something that we're going to have to continue to learn how to manage, how continue to adapt to and with. And, and those can be scary things to think about. And so those are things I think that keep me up at night. And it, sometimes it can, can overwhelm you, but I think that there are signs of hope and things that we can point to to let the public know that the, the investments that the state have made over the last several years are paying off, saving lives and saving livelihoods. Fascinating thoughts from Chip Klein, coastal protection and restoration expert, and about to be a speaker at Nomar's <laughs> event on uh, October 5th. Uh, so if you want to hear more about that event, um, more from you, attend that event and hear what you have to say with the other panelists. Yeah, that would be great. This is my first time to attend. Um, and so, look, if I, j I joke and say where there are two or more are gathered that want to talk about coastal protection and restoration, I'm showing up. <laughs> but uh, I think it'll be a great opportunity. And I, th I think, you know, people are like, well, wait a minute, realtors? And how, how, why would they care? But again, I mean, think about the housing market. How, how is the housing market affected by... Um, coastal restoration and hurricane protection. Right. And the two are tied together. So, well, I look forward to hearing more from you about it. Thanks so much for sharing your time. Yep. Thanks for having me. Y'all have a good afternoon.
Thanks for listening. Biz Talks is brought to you by Biz New Orleans Magazine. Follow us on social media at Biz New Orleans and visit bizneworleans.com for daily news and stories.